Revelation 19. I took my title tonight from a sermon I listened to by Sam Storms where he connected the Christian's hope spoken of so often in the New Testament to this text in Revelation. Human souls won't survive. We'll, we'll die without hope. There isn't something to hope for. I hope that you will enjoy this worship gathering and be encouraged by it. I hope that uh, my daughters and son will find Jesus-loving spouses who will love them and be kind to them. I hope that the Ohio State Buckeyes will once again rise to glory this season. Yeah, you can boo all you want, people. (laughs) I hope they will, which includes beating Michigan. I hope, I hope, I hope, right? Not one of the hopes I've just mentioned is guaranteed to happen. Not one. Hope is almost dangerous because when we, when what we hope for doesn't happen, we hurt and we question everything and we're confused and disillusioned. So if we want to have hope at all, we better hope in something that is absolutely certain. And the Word of God tells us what that certainty is. That no matter what happens in this world, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to this earth to consummate His kingdom, deliver His people, banish evil from the world, destroy every enemy that defies Him and His Lordship, and to create a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where we will live with Him for all eternity. This is most certainly true. This is the hope Paul describes to Titus in Titus 2, 13 and 14, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the hope Peter calls us to have in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ and that John himself wrote of in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Unless our hope is in the literal, tangible, physical, and personal return of Jesus Christ to this earth, we have no hope. None. There isn't another thing to hope for that ultimately makes any sense given the truth of things. The hope for His return is the only hope we can have that we can be certain, certain, will never put us to shame or make us regret having it. So tonight we'll read what John says about this hope, especially as it pertains to the end of this world and all its unbelief and immorality and idolatry. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, I ask that you would help me preach tonight this text. That you would help me draw out of it what you breathed into it for the sake of your name and the sake of us, your people. Father, please help me speak. Please help everyone hear. 
by the grace of our Lord Jesus and the power of His Holy Spirit. For in His great name we pray. Amen. Let me read verses 11 through 16 of chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The return of Jesus Christ and the consummation of his kingdom have been alluded to in Revelation 11:15, Revelation 14, 14 through 16. But now there's no longer any illusion here. There is no doubt what is happening here. This second section of chapter 19 is the vivid and highly symbolic portrait of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And listen, one way or another, all of us will see this and all of us will be there. There are 12 descriptive phrases here in these verses, and each one tells us something about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus will do for His own people. First, in verse 11, Jesus is sitting on a white horse. Now remember, back in chapter 6, verse 2, there was another white horse, but the rider of that horse was a satanic ripoff of the Lord Jesus. And the point of picturing Jesus on a white horse here is to tell us, to give us The understanding that when he returns, he is coming to conquer and to rule. He comes back once. There is one second coming. The second descriptive phrase of Jesus in verse 11 is that he is called faithful and true. Jesus has the right to bring judgment with him because his faithfulness to the Father in obedience and his faithfulness in fulfilling every promise God has made have been perfect Jesus always spoke the truth. He never compromised. Beloved, listen. We can't trust anyone but Jesus. Anyone. Right? There's nobody. There's nobody that can live up to trust completely and fully and perfectly except Jesus. He's the only one who never lies. Who is always faithful to His promises. Who never breaks His word. He's the only one who will never betray us and never break our confidence in Him. He's the only one who will always tell it like it is. Which means if the one who God says is faithful and true, tells us that our sins are forgiven, and that His life and death and resurrection justify us completely before God the Father, we can believe it. We should believe it. Because it's true. We can bank on it. Thirdly, in verse 11, in righteousness He judges And makes war. Interestingly, those verbs are both in the present tense. So it's presented to us that this is what Jesus is doing all the time now. He's not just waging war against unbelievers. He's waging war on behalf of believers. On behalf of His people, of us. He judges in righteousness. Which means Jesus isn't a tyrant. He isn't a despot who takes bribes or extorts the weak for power. 
He wields the sword of judgment in perfect righteousness and in perfect line with what is right. Jesus doesn't wage unrighteous or unjust wars for financial gain or territorial gain, but wars against all such things and schemes. Fourthly, in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This reminds us deliberately of the picture of the risen and exalted Christ in heaven all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. This phrase about him, this description, points to the fact that Jesus is the divine judge who sees everything and everyone perfectly and comprehensively and sees into the hearts of all people. One of the most terrifying things we can say that we think is good is that God knows my heart. God knows my heart. Right. That's why He sent His Son to die for us. Because He knows our hearts. There's a great little meme on, I think it was on Twitter, that had a a quote from Princess Diana on the top, who it seems was a very wonderful person, right? But the quote says, just do what your heart tells you. And that's pretty common. That's pretty... Um, popular sentiment, right? The bottom is a drawing of a guy that says, my heart is telling me to drink until I get drunk and break into Taco Bell and steal food and money. Right? So always do what your heart tells you. Do we see how foolish this is? Only God can judge me. That's terrifying. Right? Terrifying. The eyes of Jesus are like a flame of are like flaming fire. No one can hide from Jesus. Not even in our hearts can we keep a single secret from Him. Everything about everyone is known to Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He not only sees what we do, but why we do what we do. So His judgments are perfect. Fifthly, in verse 5, on His head are many diadems. In every way, Jesus is the opposite of the dragon. That's what images like this, picking up on terms and descriptors we've seen before and then applied to Jesus and expounded or multiplied, that's what they're meant to convey. Images like this are working very hard in Revelation to prove that Jesus is the exact opposite of Satan and all that is evil in their attempt to mock him. The dragon, if you remember, he had diadems. He had seven of them. The beast, if you remember, he had diadems. He had ten of them. Jesus has many diadems on his head. G.K. Beale writes that the undefined multiplicity of diadems shows Christ is the one, the only true cosmic king on a grander scale than the dragon and the beast whose small number of crowns implies a kingship that is limited in time. Christ could wear more crowns than any earthly king or kings since He is King of kings and Lord of lords. In verse 16, such a crown, many diadems, is telling us the extent of His great authority. Sixthly, in verse 12, He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. Now this is a strange thing to say because if you'll notice, He has three other names in this very text that we do know. Right, So he has many names. This one is apparently too sacred or profound for any of us to know, but that's not really what it seems to be driving at. This echoes chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 12, where we discover it's not that the name is concealed from ever being known, but it has to do with the fact that Jesus is absolutely sovereign over humanity's access to him, over how 
he may be known or how his name may be known, which means to some Jesus reveals his name. That is his character by becoming their savior to others. He reveals who he actually is only in judgment. We can conclude then that his name here refers mainly to his character as a saving Lord or a judging king. Everyone will find out who he is to them on that day. In the seventh description of Jesus in verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Would this be the blood of the martyred saints or of his defeated enemies? Which, which was a very common image in the Old Testament. Since he descends from heaven, comes from heaven, out of heaven, with this blood already on him, I believe this refers to his own blood that was shed on the cross. This represents his victory over sin. Next, the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So through the words and actions of Jesus, he reveals and makes known the very character of God himself. We know this. The Word, Jesus, was with God, and he was God back in John 1, 1. He makes it known, the Word of God. He brings it to pass. He speaks for God perfectly. He completely embodies all that God is as the exact imprint of His nature. In verse 14, the armies of heaven, armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We just saw that back in the first ten verses last week. We're following Him on white horses. Beloved, these are believers both the martyrs and others that have gone before us in death in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1714 spoke of the second coming of Christ and those identified with him as the called and the chosen and the faithful, which was a clear reference to Christians. And with only one exception, only believers are spoken of as wearing white garments. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 to 17 also speaks of the saints accompanying Jesus at His second coming. That's what it's talking about this moment. And we just read last week in verse 8 that the saints, the people whom God has saved and called to Himself, have had their fine linen bright and pure granted to them to wear by God for the marriage supper of the Lamb. They appear again at His return, and now they are wearing what we realize is the colors of their King. Next in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, meaning they will be completely defeated by the judgment of sin, never to rise again. He will have full and complete authority over them and their destiny. One word from his mouth, one declaration of judgment from Jesus and his enemies are decisively defeated by his proclamation of the truth. One pastor says this, and I thought it was relevant given our current climate. He says, I find it fascinating, disturbing, and a bit silly. And this was several years ago he wrote this, to listen to Russia and North Korea and the United States threaten one another with destruction, each claiming to have more nuclear firepower, more manpower, more machines and military might than the other. When Jesus returns, he will only have to speak one word with the sword that comes from his mouth, and all nations will crumble in defeat. One word. Next in verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This image comes from Isaiah 63, 2-6. Also comes from Revelation 14, 19-20. So notice what 
the revelation is to John here. God is piling up images and language to show that he is the almighty one. He's over all these other powers, all earthly powers, all heavenly powers. That one day such a God will let loose his full wrath against wickedness and rebellion, the intensity and fury of which are inconceivable, beloved. No matter how evil and wicked our world is or becomes. I just watched a clip before we started tonight of a, I believe it was a woman, and I'm not trying to be funny or or cruel or anything like that. I, I think it was a lady preaching in a church that she started talking about how she had planted a Jesus church. Because if a church doesn't address, um, doesn't value justice and queerness and transgender issues, then it's not a Jesus church. Beloved, this is dangerous talk. It's dangerous talk. Not because those sins, you know, are worse than other sins when it comes to judgment, right? Sins will be judged, period. But... If people believe that, their souls are lost and judgment is coming for them. And they're deceived because that's what the evil one does. One day God's wrath will come upon those who do such things. He clearly says this in Ephesians. But no matter how evil and wicked our world is or becomes, no matter how arrogant and confident in itself it is. Don't think for one moment that God doesn't see or is indifferent. That keeps coming up in Revelation. That's why you've heard me say it so much. Cataclysmic, fierce, but righteous judgment is coming. That means nobody can escape it, right? Because it's right and it's true. And lastly, in verse 16 of these 12 descriptors, on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think that's a tattoo. That's what it seems to be. In Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous, made righteous by Christ. We run into His name and we are saved. We are safe. Beloved, remember who your God is when you read these scary texts. Remember who has said He is coming for you. Remember who it is that will literally send out an army to get you because He loves you. Remember that. Remember that when you are forgotten and skipped over, that God has not done either. And He never will. Ever. Remember who your God is. Remember what Jesus has said and take refuge in Him. The One who is coming for us is the one in whom we find refuge and reassurance of all God's promises. This is the name of Him. The name is the name of our Savior who reigns and rules over everything. He leaves heaven a second time as that. King of kings, Lord of lords, to come for us. To put an end once and for all to sin and evil. We put our hope in the future in the meaning of all the names of Jesus that are given to us in Scripture. Now, before we finish tonight with this last section in 17 to 21, we're, we're almost done here. We have um, a few more sermons to go, but let me take a moment here, if I could, to give you uh, a step-by-step order of what 
I believe the text teaches will happen when Jesus returns to the earth. Because I know this can be confusing. Um, I know that I see the end times and the rapture a bit differently than, than most of us probably. So, first, we have to come to terms with, with what's not in Revelation that we think is so critical to the end times. Rather than a rapture where Christians are removed from the earth so that they don't endure persecution and trials imposed by the beast on unbelievers. The end time scenario portrayed by Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, rather than portrayed by Revelation, the one where American Christians are somehow spared from what Christians around the world are dealing with right now and have been dealing with for literally centuries. I don't believe that's the event that kicks off the end times. The rapture is mentioned nowhere in Revelation. Now, does that mean there is no such thing? It doesn't mean that. But as this event that's secret, that nobody knows what happened, and it kicks off this set seven-year period, you don't have that in Revelation. The word's not even in Revelation. No word in Revelation at all that speaks of a rapture or uses the name. Don't get mad at me for that. I didn't write this. Furthermore, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where the rapture or the word the Bible actually uses in Greek, the translation of the saints, is described as a means of escape from tribulation or suffering. That's not how our exit from this earth is described. So I don't believe, again, that we'll know that that's the event that kicks off the end times. I believe, as I've tried to show from our study here, that Revelation is describing events and the characteristics of the world from the ascension to the second coming of Christ. Revelation starts with a picture of the risen and exalted Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And in light of the fact that He's reigning from there is the thing that shapes the rest of human history until His return. So, the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, these describe the course of human history and what it's going to look like because Jesus is reigning from the Father's right hand and Satan is doing everything that he can to steal people from Jesus and keep people from coming to Him and blinding Him and God's wrath in measure. We know this from Romans 1 very clearly. We'll get into it here very soon that God's wrath in some measure is being poured out right now on human beings by giving them over to do the things they want to do. That's the wrath of God being poured out in the world. I think these things describe... The course of history, they climax in the final bowl, the final trumpet, I believe. But then at the close of history, which is where we are here, Christ will return the second time with all of His angels in company with them and all those who up to that point have died in the faith at the sound of the trumpet spoken of in First Thessalonians 4, 13-18, which is not described as this sort of Christian dog whistle that only we hear. How do we know that? For one thing, because it, it doesn't say that, but also because the whole reason Paul writes that to the Thessalonian believers is because that far back, 25, 30 years removed from the ministry of Jesus, there were Christians that looked at the world and said, we missed the second coming of Jesus because it's always going to look basically the same. 
And Paul says, no, 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 you haven't missed the coming of Jesus. There's going to be a trumpet. That, that's, his, that's his bargaining chip with them. No, no one will wonder what happened. There's going to be a trumpet and the eastern sky is going to crack. And here he comes on a white horse with his army. At the sound of the trumpet, those already with Christ will immediately receive their resurrected and glorified bodies. Then those believers who are alive on the earth when he comes will be caught up, translated, raptured, and immediately transformed by receiving their glorified bodies. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 55. Fourthly, we will then accompany Christ. We will meet him in the air. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is talking about. We will meet him in the air as he's coming down and join his army with our resurrected, glorified bodies, transformed in a moment, and we'll participate in his defeat of all his enemies. Again, that's what the word that we translate rapture, that is translation, means. It means to meet, to meet with him in the air. So Revelation 19 is describing the meeting with Jesus that Paul was talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4, and the judgment of the world at the end of all things. There aren't two second comings. There's one, beloved. So we pick it up in verse 17. So in other words, what do I believe is next on the clock of the world? Satan will be let loose to do his worst. And the church will basically be eradicated. And then Jesus will come and it will all be over. And we'll be with Him one way or the other. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, which is an amazing thought. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains. Again, think, there aren't any birds flying around the sun. This is an image to us. In verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. This is what John was shown earlier in Revelation, all these gathering of the kings. And the beast was captured in verse 20, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Do you notice something about the battle here? Armageddon, as it's called by some, where all the forces of evil in the earth meet to destroy Jesus. There is no battle. There's no fight. All we know is the outcome. And it happens very fast. All the mustering of the dragon and the beast and the prostitute and all the kings of the earth, it ends in a moment with one word from Jesus. That's what he's capable of. This is the end of any opportunity to believe the gospel. Once final judgment comes, no one who remains unbelieving, 
may be saved. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches us that once final judgment arrives, whether it's in death or this, that there would be another chance or a way to get out of it. The angel announces the coming destruction of the beast and the false prophet and all their followers with the same words and imagery that we read in Ezekiel 39.4 and 17.20 where it describes the defeat of Gog and Magog. That's what this is. This is the defeat of the world. The picture of vultures or other birds of prey feasting on the flesh of corpses killed in battle was used very often in the Old Testament. You'll find it in Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, First uh, and Second Kings, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it's a, it's a very clear image in the Old Testament of, if, if someone's flesh, so this is very graphic symbolism, if someone's flesh was given up to be eaten by birds, what, what that was portraying is their total defeat and humiliation. That's why David says this to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 46 and 47. The birds will feast on your flesh. You're going to be annihilated. So we don't need to think of all these bodies of unbelievers piled up, literally being eaten by birds. It's much worse than that. The fact that God's enemies are going to suffer complete, eternal defeat and devastation and be absolutely humiliated by His judgment. Beloved, God's judgment is the great equalizer in the future. No wealth or influence, or political power, or gender, or ethnicity, or education will save anyone from judgment. All will be held entirely accountable to God and God alone. Again, notice how quick this is in verses 19 and 21, or 19 to 21. The resistance will be absolutely futile. The omnipotent authority of Jesus Christ will bring an immediate and irreversible end to all opposition. This judgment comes in two stages here. The first thing that happens is that the beast and false prophet are captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now, I've tried to show that the beast and the false prophet are collective metaphors of apocalyptic literature of the evil system of the secular state and the world. I've argued they're not two particular individuals who appear only at the end of time. They are terms that stand for the world and the state ran by Satan against God. Even though certain individuals may function at various times throughout history as manifestations of the beast or the false prophet, we've seen them and will continue to see them. Hitler, Nero, Caesar, the popes, right? We, we, we've seen this. So, Tony, if that's the case... If they are pictures or images, how in the world can two metaphorical images of evil and of the state be thrown alive into the lake of fire? And beloved, this is exactly what I mean in how we read Revelation. Because later in Revelation 20, 14, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. That's not two people. These are things that exist because of sin that Jesus will end in judgment. This is apocalyptic, prophetic literature. These are symbols and images drawn from all of Scripture, all of prophecy, of very real things. Pictures of spiritual realities and things that exist again because of sin and Satan. And then all the rest of their followers, right, are killed and thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 20.15. This is how our world as we know it will end. And there are only two ways tonight. 
Two ways to escape the eternal judgment that comes when Jesus does. Two ways, Tony? Well, sure. You can live a perfect life without any sin. And have nothing that can condemn you. I mean, no sin, not just in the things you do and don't do, but also in your thoughts and your motivations. You've never even had an evil thought, let alone done a wrong thing or a bad thing. You only have to be perfect. Perfect and spotless from conception to death. No mess-ups. If you do that, Jesus will not destroy you. Or, you can realize how insane that is and receive the forgiveness of all sins that comes only by the bloody death of Jesus Christ for us and receive the gift of His righteousness and obedience that He gives to us by faith in His resurrection. So there is judgment or there is Jesus. And that's it. That's it. Everybody hopes for things, right? We all do. We're all hoping for things right now. Even atheists hope that certain things will become true, right? Maybe they hope that we're wrong because if we're not, their future is being described here in Revelation 19, 17 to 21. Or maybe people hope that at the end, really, God's not going to judge. He's not going to judge people and, and, and maybe He'll just accept everybody when it's all said and done. And salvation doesn't come just through faith in Jesus. It just can't be that way. But if that's true, that it doesn't, then it makes God into a liar and it makes a mockery of what Jesus offered up that God said He required for salvation to take place. There isn't a happy afterlife for everyone. And there isn't anything that will happen that is contrary to what God has said in His Word. I can be wrong about the end times. You can be wrong about the end times. God cannot be and will not be. Right? Unless our hope is in the literal, tangible, physical, personal return of Jesus Christ to this earth, we have no hope. There is only one hope that is certain. There is only one hope that will most certainly come true. The hope that there is an eternity of glory and joy and happiness and peace that comes from being forgiven by Jesus Christ and credited with His goodness. This is the only thing that doesn't fail. This is the only thing that will never fail. I cast all my chips, my whole hand on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that's not true, there is no reason to live. None. To know that it's real and it's true somehow for a sinner like me to believe that this is true to me means it's true. That God considers my sins forgiven for His Son's sake. That all that I do and say and think and the patterns in my life and, and the failures that I cannot seem to overcome. All of that. My sins are forgiven. God considers me righteous. That gives me comfort in the darkest nights of my soul. It has always pulled me out of the pit. Every time. 
every time. I will never forget the darkest time I can remember as I'm talking here now. I think I've shared it with you before of when I had left ministry, I had left the church, and I didn't want to go back at all. the, The thought of it just sickened me, to be honest. So I was working a job. I, I, I transferred out of Liberty to go to Franklin University in Columbus and get my MBA. And I was working in the tax department at Limited and was, I had a really good job. Um, was sitting in my car at lunch, planning a life apart from Christ. And I began to beg for repentance. And I have no idea where it came from. I began to repent of my sins and my wandering and my selfishness and my evil and my failures. And, and beloved, I wish I could tell you that I, I never went back to any of those things. Of course I did. But from that moment on, I have known that I am His. I tried to run away. I tried with everything I had to run away. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords said, no. And thank God that he did. Thank God he overrode my will or I wouldn't be here. So this is the most beautiful, this truth. Again, please tonight as you leave, don't get hung up on the ways that you and I might disagree over the end. Okay, don't. Listen, we're we're doing the best with the information in front of us. I pray that we're all trying to do that study and learn but these are things when you read these things there's no like is this going how there's no like how is this going to happen it, it's going to happen like this this is the end everything jesus said about us is true and we'll see him can you imagine what it will be like number 1 let's say your loved ones that have gone on before you that you love and cherish and miss so much when you are struggling I want you to picture them on a white horse in robes of white, crying out, glorifying the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. They will never die. The battle will not touch them. They will not be harmed. They will never be sick again, never experience hurt or suffering or pain ever again. And they will be loud and strong and conquering with the Son. Or maybe this happens in our lifetimes. And so we see that coming from the east. And we realize, oh my gosh, it's the truth. There he is. And we aren't crying for the rocks to fall on us. We want to be in that number. And for all our disagreements and sins and struggles and difficulties, as we're all rising up to meet him, I bet it won't matter. And I bet we'll just be looking at each other, realizing that we will never die, that we will never sleep in the grave, that we will soon be not only reunited with our loved ones that have gone on before us in Christ, but we will be riding with the Son on His way back to the earth. And let that give you peace when nothing else can. Because I don't know the course of your life from here on out, and I don't know the course of mine, but I do know this. And God is telling you this also. This is going to happen. I've cast my entire lot on it. 
don't believe it because of that. I'm just telling you what this text does in my heart, right? I cannot wait for this day. I cannot wait for this day. Someday the sun will rise for the last time. And when that day ends, you and I will be standing with Jesus Christ Himself. And there is no reason in the universe that this cannot also be true of you.